Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Awesome. Good morning. And uh, listen, I, you don't need me. You don't need speakers. Praise God that you invited me. Praise God for your pastor and the, your elders and your deacons and, and your and your community that invited me. But listen, anybody that gets up at 6.30 in the morning and gets here by 7, you're already walking in victory. You're walking in victory because there's, there's something in you that got you up that, more, that early on Saturday morning. And I just encourage you guys, you guys are incredible, um, incredible leaders wherever you're at. And you're here because of that purpose. I really believe that. And uh, so thank you, Pastor. I, I love being here. I was excited when he called me up and and uh, yeah, I was trying to remember when last time I was here, we were in that little uh, kind of a small youth center there and uh, just met some, I remember some faces and, and I remember Leo, we kind of connected. I don't know if Leo's here yet, but uh, Leo and his wife, Jen, I met them some years ago too. And uh, so um, I'm from Pennsylvania, but I am living in Texas and I'm not turning back. <laughs> You know, I'm not turning back. I picked up my cross and I'm moving forward. And uh, so if I go back to Pennsylvania, I'm going to be like a pillar of salt or something. But uh, so I grew up in Pennsylvania and I was a sophomore in high school. I was a really good athlete uh, with a lot of potential. I had no idea what potential I had in track and football. And I was already competing with seniors. I was going to states and districts and track and we were playing ball. And, and it was it was just incredible. Uh, looking back at the potential that I had that was untapped and, and it, was, it was unharnessed. And, uh, but one of my downfalls was I was drinking. So I grew up in an alcoholic family, just, you know, I, I was never beat, I was never abused, I was never neglected in the sense of I wasn't fed, my clothes were clean, but I lived in a, a family that alcohol was a staple on the table. And so coming home every day, my mother would be, you know, either passed out or, you know, it, it, was, just, it was just something that we kind of grew up with. And and uh, so I was starting to drink too at 14, 15, 16. And at 17, I had a cousin come from New Jersey to Pennsylvania to visit. And my favorite cousin, Bobby. He was just, he was, he was a weightlifter. He, he, uh, he just, he just, he was, when we were kids, he took us go-kart riding, paid attention to us. He's that cousin uh, in the family of a bunch of cousins that really paid attention to us kids. And, and he, was tw- he was seven years old. He was 24. I was 17 at the time. And, so we're sitting at the table in a couple hours, my parents go to bed and we're sitting at the table and, and uh, he says, you know, we're drinking with an older stepbrother. He says, I want to go shoot some pool. It's about almost 12 o'clock at night and my mother's like, I say, y'all want to go too? And my mother's in the other side. I said, no, it's too late. You can't go. So I said, come on, Bobby. So out the door we go at the bar, this is Lake Tavern, shooting some pool. And uh, about 20 minutes into shooting pool, we're drinking some shots. And I remember everything. I was drunker than anybody. And uh, so was he and my stepbrother. But I, I remember everything. And, and uh, he says, I'm going to rob the place. And I thought, mm, you know. And I'm trying to remember, like, exactly all the things that went through my mind. And not a whole lot went through my mind. I had no moral compass in me to kind of say, no, it's, it's, it's wrong. I, I knew I wasn't going to do it. I knew that wasn't something I would ever thought of and done. And so we decided that we would leave, and uh, we parked down the street about 50 yards. We got out and walked back. I stood there on the street. He walked into the bar, and he murdered the owner. He murdered a 60-year-old woman. He stabbed her to death. 
And we, I, didn't, I had no idea until I walked into the bar looking for him, and he was already crazy. He was already, he, was, he just finished killing her, and he was going crazy in there, and it was like, yelled him to stop, and he, he didn't, and then we stepped back out, and then we went back in later. He said, come on, help me find some money. And so we went in and looked around, and he found some money in a box, and we took off, went to New York City. Well, up in New York City for about a day and a half, walking the streets, all he was doing was shooting drugs. And I was lost in the saw. I mean, I, I had no idea what to do or where to go or what to do, you know. And I'm thinking, man, my friends are in high school and I should be like there. And here I was walking the streets of New York City, city in Spanish Harlem, walking in and out of drug dens and drinking and getting high. And so I turned myself in. I was arrested and charged with murder. My cousin, he turned himself in about 10 days later. He said it was his idea. He did it. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have been there. I was charged and I was arrested and placed in juvenile center. And 90 days in my arrest, my attorney, public defender, said, hey, the best thing you do is, really, the best thing you do is plead guilty and you can get out in 10 years. So with that counsel, I do. And the day before my 18th birthday in March of 1978, so the crime happened in 77, June 77. And in 78, March 79, months later, day before my 18th birthday, I stood before a judge in Wyoming County, and the judge says, I sentence you to life without the possibility of parole. And I'm thinking 10 years. I had no idea, no clue, that when I left there and I went to the State Correctional Institution, Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, that I was doing life without possibility of parole. It, didn't make a re it wasn't a reality <coughs> until I started meeting these other guys serving life without parole. And they're like, hey, young buck, how much time are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm doing life, but I'm getting out in 10. They're like, no, you're not. You're going to die in here like the rest of us. And I was like, so the reality set in, and I, I called my attorney, the public defender I had, and next thing you know, I'm hanging up the phone in defeat because he said, no sense going back to court. You'll get more time. And so intimidated and scared and whatever, I, I go back, and I said, I'll just start my time. And so I, whatever I did, I remember walking up to that facility and, and seeing the bars and the Bob wire and the guard and the tower and the, and the, and the gun, and, and I thought, there's no way I can do this. There's no way. Whatever I have to do to get out, I'll get out. I even thought about escaping. I mean, all that stuff goes through your mind. So I, I started right away. I got a GD and I did some college work, and I started getting into some programs, like self-help programs, AANA. I started doing, like, stress and anger. Everything I could possibly get involved in, I got involved in because I wanted to figure out how did I end up 17, 18 years old in prison? And all my friends went on to college and played ball and, and they got married and had kids. And, and here I was, five, six, seven years in the system. And I was struggling. I was really seeking. I sat with counselors and I sat with psychologists. And I was like, I, I'm trying to figure out how did I end up in here? You know, like, I know I made bad choices. I know I, I was involved in the crime. But like, what was going on in my mind? And nobody really gave me an answer. You know, they say, hey, read this book, do this, do meditation, do yoga do all this stuff, you know, do good, obey the rules, obey the authority, stop getting misconducts. And so about six years into my sentence, it got old. And, and, and so I, when, when you start looking for something to mask pain, you'll find it. And so I found someone who had some access to meth. I, I found someone who had access to prescription medications from the outside. And so doing painkillers and speed, painkillers and speed, to point, putting a needle in my arm and getting high and doing some coke and meth. And, and if for about two years doing that, 
Never got caught. Lived under the radar. I, I, knew how to, I knew how to talk. I knew how to obey. I knew how to, you know, do the right things in the prison system. But inside, man, I, I was a mess. In my heart, I was, I was a mess. Caught up in pornography, uh, caught up in drugs, caught up in hustling and, you know, hurting people and people getting hurt and um, hurting me. And it, it was just it's the lifestyle of, of living in that darkness. And so about nine years, nine and a half years into my sentence, you know, I started thinking about getting out of prison um, through the governor. And, but I, I was just like, I'm a mess, you know, and I'd never really accomplished much. So I had a GED. I did some college work. I got some programs on my belt. I really haven't done anything. I don't even know who I am. And so about nine and a half years, I'm just kind of walking the prison system, going through the same old routine. And, and like I said, prison's very routine. Uh, if you've been there, you know, it's very routine. It's very secure. The only thing that kind of interrupts the prison life is violence. And there's plenty of that in there. There's plenty of that in there. And, uh, um, so I, I'm struggling, and I walk to go eat, and I'll see on a bulletin board an announcement for something that's going on in the prison chapel. Now, chapel and prison, church, and me, and it just didn't go together. I grew up in a family that we went to church on Sunday, went to confession on Saturday, went to church on Sunday, and go into the bar Sunday afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and my, my folks would give me some change, and you know, it was just, we, we'd sit there at the bar, and so... Church and life never equated to anything that meshed. It was like oil and water. So I just never had an interest in church. I never had an interest in the Bible. I never had an interest in the gospel or anything like that. But so I was going to eat and I saw this prison invasion, 1986, invitation to the chapel. And so I said, man, I signed up. So I went. And I remember walking into this prison chapel and it was probably about 250, maybe more guys in this prison chapel. And it was a lot of them, about 175, 100 of them from the outside community, like, like ourselves. They, they volunteered to do the prison ministry. And so I walk into this prison chapel, and I remember walking in, and it was electrifying. Man, people were, they were lined up, they were welcoming. You know how important it is to welcome someone you see them? It's so important because it's the decision whether you come back or not. And they had a gauntlet, and I, when I walked into that prison chapel, and the music was playing, and the, and the worship was going on, I was like, what is this? This is not church. This is not this, you know, with the, the statues and the smoke and all that. And I walked in and I was like, man, people were hugging me and saying, I love you and Jesus loves you. And I've never like, never even experienced that before. And I remember walking in and at the, at the service, the man preached and said, Jesus died and rose again. And in him, there's eternal life. And at the end, he said, real men make commitments. Real men make commitments. And I sat there and I'm thinking, man, he's speaking right to me. But I didn't make a commitment that night. I left and I go back Saturday and I bring some friends. This is how crazy the Lord is. I, I was bringing some friends with me and I wasn't even saved, but I said, man, you got to come over. You got to check these guys out. There's something going on in this chapel. It's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's exciting. There's something going on. And I didn't even know what it was, but I brought some friends. And so we we're there and the same thing, the music, the worship, teen challenge, testimonies. People were talking about uh, gang banging. They were talking about shooting and stabbing one another and drinking and drugging and, and all this stuff that God delivered them. And I thought, man, I, I could kind of, I relate to this, some of that stuff, you know? And, and uh, he, he, again, the guy says, Jesus died, was buried and rose again. And in him, there's eternal life. Okay. Yeah. He preached, he preached the gospel, but that's what I kind of remembered and it stuck with me. And at the end of the service, he said, real men make commitments. Real men make commitments. And I thought, man, I've never made a commitment in my life. Because anytime things got hard, I'd quit. 
And so I, I, I remember sitting there, and my stomach was turning, my hands were sweating. And at the end of the service, there was an altar call, and I, I didn't move. I sat there. So kind of everybody was mingling afterwards, you know. People were still praying, but everybody was mingling, talking, high-fiving, praying with another, laughing, carrying on. And I, I kind of stood back in the middle of the chapel, and I remember this. I didn't want to make eye contact with anybody because I did. They would come up and say, hey, do you know Jesus? Hey, have you made a commitment? Hey, are you a Christian? And I would have to say no every time. But so I stopped looking at people. I stopped making eye contact with people because I was, I was getting tired. I was getting like, I was, I was feeling threatened, you know, in a sense of like where I was at. And I, and I was avoiding. So I stood in the middle of a room of about 250 men. And everybody was, I was like kind of looking around. And I'm like, man, they're having a good time. And, and this guy comes up behind me and says, how you doing tonight? And I turned, he was a guy from the outside community. And I said, good. And he said, have you made a commitment tonight? I was like, ah, no. And I said, I know some Christians. <laughs> he said, hey, wait right here. So he leaves real quick. He gives me his card. His name is Larry Titus. And he said, hey, I'm a pastor from a street down, a church down the road here. He said, if you need anything, give me a call. You need a Bible. You need clothes, sneakers. You need some money. You need anything. Just give me a call. You want someone to talk to? And I'm thinking, this guy doesn't know me from a can of paint. He doesn't know, he doesn't know I'm a lifer. He doesn't know anything about me. But all of a sudden, he's like offering me all this stuff, and he's like, you need someone to talk to. So I said, oh, well, let me ask you. I said, are you a Christian? And he says, yeah, I'm a Christian. I said, well, how long have you known Jesus? He said, since I was four years old. I said, you known Jesus since you were four? He said, yeah, I knew God called me to be a missionary at five. And I stood there in front of him, and I thought, man, I'm a big zero. It wasn't in condemnation. I just knew by hearing him say that that I wasn't where I should be. And I didn't know where I should be, but I knew I wasn't where I was supposed to be. And that started something. That started turning in my stomach and my mind. And he said, hey, give me a call. And he gave, and so I, he left, and I left. And I couldn't sleep that night. I went back, reluctantly, I went back to church on Sunday. And I write a lot about this in the book of Unshackled that I have out there. And I just encourage you, it's a great relational book. It's, it's about evangelism. It's about um, just, it's relational. I'm not, I'm not a preacher. I'm not quoting 100 scriptures in the book, and I'm not teaching anything. It's just the experience of a story of God working in there, you know. And that's why I love reading Genesis, Joseph's story. I used to read it all the time. And it was just, you, you can't miss, you know, God's never really mentioned in there, but you can't miss it. And so that's the books out there. And so Larry, uh, he leaves and I leave. And I go back Sunday morning and I'm in the back pew. And the only thing left is the door because I'm like prepared to leave if it got real uncomfortable. And anyway, the man says, Jesus died, he rose again for you. And my struggle was, I knew what it was to do life, but I didn't know about eternal life. You know, what is this thing about eternal life? Do I have it? Do I not? I know what life in prison means. And he said, real men make commitments. So there I sat, I, I, I thought, man, I never made a commitment. And did Jesus die and rise again for me? That was the question that was really hitting me home, hitting home hard was that he do it for me. I, I believe he did it. I really did. I, 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 could, I could say, yeah, I would, never, I would never say he never did it, but I, did he do it for me? Was I a person that he had to do it for? And I, and I sat there and I thought, man. And so with some encouragement, I went up front and I remember getting on my knees up front and this, you know, the music was playing and there was stuff going on and I didn't care about anybody. I didn't care about my friends anymore. I didn't care about what it looked like or what. And I just remember getting on my knees and they led me through a center prayer, and, and I just said, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Come into my heart and be the Lord of my life. I want to live for you. And I mean, immediately, I felt like chains broke off me. 
something happened that this weight came off me and I stood up and the guy said, you have a Bible? He said, go back, read your Bible. And I said, I do. And he kept telling me before I left about, about 10 times. He said, you got a Bible? Read your Bible. Go back, read your Bible. So I go back and I'm reading my Bible and the first thing I realize is Jesus is real and it lives in my heart. And I couldn't explain it. I didn't even know anything. I didn't know doctrine. I didn't know deity. I didn't know anything. All I knew is that the more I read the Bible, the more Jesus was real. And as I read it, I realized how many people that I had hurt, how many people I had offended and friends of mine that I stopped talking to over drugs and over money and over attitudes, you know, and I just kind of blew those guys off. And I thought, man, I want a relationship with God so bad. And God's saying, yeah, but you need to get it right with those guys. And so I get on my knees and I said, God, forgive me for hurting Danny. And Danny was the guy to introduce me to shooting drugs. And in fact, he helped put the needle in my arm. And, and we, like, there's a bond that you do when you go crazy like that. But he was a friend and I just blew him off and it was over some money and drugs. And, and so they, I said, Dan, God, forgive me for hurting Danny. And Danny, he said, yeah, but I'm not Danny. Go talk to Danny. And I'm thinking, oh. And I was afraid to apologize because when I was a kid, I stayed out till about four in the morning drinking. And when I came home, my mother just went crazy, you know, and she tried to hit me with a spatula. She tried to hit me and I grabbed her arms and I said, you're not, you're not strong enough. You're not hitting me. And she got mad and I knew I was wrong. And the next morning I tried to apologize to my mother and she just blew up and, 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 and you know, rightfully so. I was, I was a kid. I was wrong. And, and, and I tried, but I was always afraid to apologize. So I had this fear that when I'd apologize to you, you would you would reject it. So I never apologized to anybody. So here was a point where God said, go talk to Danny. And I'm like, oh, man, I'd rather do another 10 years than have to go apologize to somebody because I was afraid of a rejection. So I go up and I'm walking down. I, I go to his cell and there he is. And I say, hey, Danny, forgive me. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a jerk. I'm sorry. You know, would you forgive me? And he's like, Gene, man, we go back a long way. So I go back to my cell and I pray again. I'm reading another guy. Boom. I go to his cell. Another guy. Seven times in two days I had to go to cell and apologize or go find someone and apologize. And it was just, it was humbling. It was hard. But I realized that my sin against Jesus, my sin against God is far greater than any sin against me. And I thank God today that I've learned that lesson because everybody's going to get offended. Everybody's going to get hurt. Everybody's going to get done something wrong. We live in a, a fallen world. We live in a world where we sin, we blow it, and we're going to hurt other people, not maybe intentionally, but we do it. And so we got to learn to forgive one another. And that's why I praise God that I've learned to forgive because Jesus forgave me. And so I learned that. And so I write to Larry Titus and I say, hey, here's my whole story. I tell him, like, I write 10 pages front and back of my whole life story. And I thought, this guy, he ain't coming. He ain't, he's not going to. Man, he wrote me back and said, put me on your visiting list immediately. I want to come visit you. So here, to tell you, is that Larry was working the ministry, but he saw me in the crowd of people, and he came and the Lord said, go join yourself to him, before I was saved. So he tells me, put me on your visiting list, come see you. So he comes, and whenever he taught church on Sunday, he would come into prison and teach me Monday. And he would spend about an hour, hour and a half. He'd buy me lunch. We'd talk, laugh. He'd tell me a couple funny stories, testimony. He would teach me something from the Bible. And one of the things he taught me real quick was to be teachable and correctable. He said, if you're teachable and you're correctable, you always grow. And so I started getting that and I started grinding on it and looking up some scriptures. And, and whatever he taught me, I'd go back and I would study it myself. And if he shared a scripture, I'd read it and memorize it. And I just wanted to get it inside my heart because I never wanted to say anything that I wasn't living. 
And so that's what he did. And, and so I learned to be teachable. And if you're teachable, you always grow. I was, the, I was the guy that said, when you try to tell me, so I was so insecure, I would say, yeah, I know that. I know. Yeah, I know. And, and I didn't. And I didn't. And God says, no, you don't know anything. <laughs> and so I learned to be teachable and assured that I would always grow. And anybody could teach me anything. I didn't care if you were a Muslim. I didn't care if you were a, uh, an unbeliever or a heathen. I didn't care who you were. You could teach me something. And I had to keep that attitude. And it was hard at times. It was hard. I wanted like, who are you? But I, I just kept my mouth shut. And I knew if I was correctable, I could move on. And no matter how far I got off track, if I was correctable, I'd get back on track. And I, got, and I, I would get off track. I'd get off track in my decision making. I'd get, I'd get off track in my attitude. And I'd get back on track and move down. And so when I had 11 years in a prison system, I went up for a commutation. A commutation is a plea of mercy with the governor of Pennsylvania. You're asking the governor to reduce your sentence from life in prison to life on parole based on merit, based on your works, based on your effort, based on who you know and what you've accomplished while you're in prison, what you're going to do when you get out. And so I started a resume. In just a few years, God started doing some things and moving, and I got involved in a lot of volunteer programs and teaching law, law, law buck literacy and, and uh, getting involved in doing Bible studies in the yard. And I just take my Bible. You know, God said, I want you to start a Bible study. So I'm looking around. I'm, at, I'm thinking, I can't find anybody that would start a Bible study. He said, I didn't, I didn't say go find someone. I said, just go out to the picnic table and sit with your Bible. And I was like, there was no one there. He said, just go out and sit. And as I sat and I would read and pray, the first day nobody came. And the next day someone stopped by and said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just sitting here reading the Bible and, and sat down. He started asking questions. And next thing you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And we'd have 20 guys out there. There was sometimes so many guys in a, in a Bible study out in the yard, the COs would come over and say, Gene, you got to break it up. It's too many. We don't want this crowd like this. And so we'd have to break it up and do small groups. But it was just God moving. It was God's always looking for one person just to step forward. And, and so uh, 11 years, I go for commutation and I get denied. And it hurt. And I remember going back to my cell <clears throat> and getting on my knees and just praising and worshiping God because I got denied. And I read this scripture in 2 Thessalonians 5, 18. It says, give thanks to God in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And so I knew what God's will is for my life was to always give praise and thanks in all circumstances because he's sovereign. You know, I wouldn't say, God, thank you for cancer. I wouldn't say, thank you, God, for violence. I would always say, God, thank you that you're overseeing that stuff, that you're over that, that you're bigger than that. You're bigger than my problems. You're bigger than a denial. You're bigger than them uh, denying me uh, a commutation. <clears throat> and so I, uh, I wait another year. <clears throat> excuse me, I wait another year and I, I go up again and I get denied and it hurts. You feel that rejection and I go back to my cell, I get on my knees and I start worshiping, praising God. And I knew that was my lifestyle that I, would, I wouldn't do anything in a prison cell. I wouldn't, do, I wouldn't even go to work. I wouldn't go work out. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get in with my friends before I would spend time with the Lord every morning. Sometimes it's 10 minutes, sometimes it was an hour. And I started memorizing the scriptures. I started memorizing verses and then I started memorizing where things were out in the Bible. Like even, uh, you know, John chapter 6, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And John 8, he's the light of the world. And John 10, he's the good shepherd. And I would try to remember, you know, content of where stuff was in the Bible. It was just sort of like sharpening the saw in the morning. So when you go out and you do ministry, you do work. And, you know, I, I like to be involved in the work. I always worked. And I like to do that because you have something common with other men. And then you start getting to know them, and then you start sharing your faith. And I knew that a lot of times guys would come into prison, and they didn't have anything. They were first time, they were there, and they have nothing. 
And so we'd get them some sneakers and we'd pull our money together and we'd get them some sneakers and some shorts. They can run some ball. We'd get them some coffee, get them some snacks or something. I figured if we meet their physical need, they might listen to what we had to say spiritually. And it just worked. It worked. I didn't have the big picture. I just knew what to do that day. I knew what to do at that moment. And so I, I, as I was moving through the institution, you know, it's just serving people. And I read this verse, so 15 years, 16 years in, my, in the system, I, I learned, I saw this verse in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and 7. It says, have the same attitude Jesus had. And I'm like, okay, he's the son of God. He's God in the flesh. So it said, and it said, though he was God in the flesh, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or bragged about, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a man, taking on the nature of a servant, being found in the appearance of a man, humbled himself and became obedient unto death. You know the scripture, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name. Because he humbled himself, God exalted him. So I learned that if I humble myself, God will exalt me. But when I exalted myself, God put his foot on my neck. He stopped right there, boom. No, humble yourself. And so I thought, what kind of attitude Jesus had? Jesus had a servant's attitude. So there was nobody in the prison system I wouldn't serve. I didn't care whether he had a brown uniform like me with the number AK-4192, which was my institution number, and I had a big letters, big white letters on the back of the shirts and the jackets, and everything I owned had big white letters, DOC, and it didn't stand for Disciple of Christ. It said Department of Corrections. I was a property of the state. And so I, I just learned to be a servant. It didn't matter who, who you were. It didn't matter if you had a corrections officer uniform on, with, you carried the mace and the handcuffs and the billy club. It didn't matter. I'd still serve you. I'd see you as someone who was reachable and, and, and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just saw my community, I saw the prison as my field of evangelism. And I would like, oh God, I want to see everybody get saved. And God says, yeah, but I called you to this one person. Yeah, but God, I see this big field. God, Gene, I called you to, to, to disciple this one guy. He's been tagging along with you. He's been holding on to your belt loop the whole time. He's walking with you the whole time. He don't know me. Why don't you work with him first? And so I kind of learned that, you know, you, you start with the small things. And God says, if you're faithful with the little things, I'll give you more. And so I was faithful with the one guy. And then it was two and it was three and it was a picnic table full. Then it was a bleacher full and then it was a church full in a prison. And our pastor was an incredible guy. The pastor was an incredible, generous man who shared his pulpit. And so we baptized guys. We would do plays. We'd do skits. We'd, you know, we'd worship. We'd just get guys together. And the church started growing. And I remember this one. He, he said, Gina, what, what, what would cause the church to grow? And I thought, prayer. If you look at the Bible, what, what caused men to rise up and be strong was prayer because prayer produces power. Reading the Word produces authority, but prayer produces power. So when Jesus did works, they said, well, by what authority and power did you do these things by? And it was obvious that Jesus knew the word. And so the more you know the word, the more authority you were able to walk in. And so we started a prayer group and we did it for about a year. And the, and the guys, about 70, 80 guys would come on Tuesday morning from nine to 10 and pray in the sanctuary. It was, un, it was unbelievable. And it was just great. And I was almost like I had a, I almost had like a, a badge of honor that, you know, pastor asked me to start this and, and it was growing. And, and then he called me to the office and said, Gene, I, I want you to move away from that. And I want you to do something else. I'm like, no, pastor, this is the prayer. And he said, no, I want you to do something else. He said, he said you got to learn to hold on to things loosely. And so I remember walking back to my cell and I'm like, God, why did he take that from me? This is, 
this is my baby, you know, it's like, uh, he said, it's not yours. It's not yours. And so the other guy that took it over, it increased even more. And then I went in and started a little Bible study and the nets started growing and the pastor said, yeah, I want you to release that and go. And so I learned how to release things as I went and God says, I want you to plant. I want you to do a little harvesting and da, da, da. And, and so I kind of learned that. So with 17 years in the prison system, I went up again for commutation and I got denied and I go back to my cell and I get on my knees and I would just say, God, thank you that you have my life planned out, that I'm born again. Heaven is for real. Eternity is waiting me. I don't want to be in prison. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And, and I got denied and I start worshiping, praising God. And then after that, I wait a couple more years and just get involved in the prison system. Just get involved in volunteering and, and doing Bible studies. And we saw guys get saved. And so I had a friend of mine, I, I write about him in a book, and his name was Orlando. He's getting out in about four months. He's done 26 years, 25 years. He killed a jeweler in Philadelphia. He was a young kid, and he's done 26. He's incredibly, incredibly changed. And he calls me about once a week. And so he, he came to my cell. He wasn't a Christian. He was involved in a lot of things. He was involved in Hindu. He was involved in Catholicism. He was involved. He was searching. He came to my cell one day, and we never, we, we had mutual friends, but we never talked. We never really sat down other than high and by. And he came into my cell, and he sat down, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just watching a little TV. There was a show about Jesus and the four Gospels. It was on A&E, you know, and, and I had my Bible, and he started talking, and he said, I don't have a Bible. And I, so I gave him my Bible. He said, what should I read? And I remember I said, just read the book of Philippians. And, and when he left, I got on my knees and I prayed and I was thinking, why did I say Philippians? And, and God says, because I, I depict Jesus as a servant. And you can't argue with a servant. You can't fight with a servant. So he, he comes back the next day. He said, man, I read this scripture. And next day he comes back, I read this other scripture. And next day he comes back and he reads. In four days, he reads the book of Philippians. He comes to my cell and he says, where should I read now? And I so wanted to lead him to the Lord. And the Lord says, I don't want you to lead him to the Lord. But Lord, that's what I do. I, I, I introduce you. And, and, and he's like, no, I don't want you to say anything to him. So he, I said, what books should I read now? And he said, and I said, and I said, read the book of Colossians. So there's four chapters there and he starts reading. And every day he'd come to my cell and he said, man, I read this scripture. It was incredible. The next day and four days later, he comes and he, he said, man, I, I said, what'd you read today? He said, he said, I didn't read anything. I said, what's going on? He looked a little downcast. He said, I did something I never did before in my life. And I thought, man, you know, I'm praying for this guy for eight days and I, and I just know God's going to do something in his life. He said, he said, I prayed. I said, would you pray? He said, Jesus saved me. I'm a nut. And, and I started laughing like you. And, and he's like, and I said, no, I'm, I'm, I said, so refreshing because I knew it was real. And I said, what happened? He started crying. He said, I'm born again. And Orlando is just an incredible, incredible witness and faithful, and he's, he disciples other guys. And it's just incredible, man. And so he's getting out in, in about four or five months, and I'm excited about that. He'll be in Philadelphia. So at 18, 19, 20, I had 24 years in the system. And I learned to be teachable. I learned to be corrective. I learned how to be a servant. But I was reading the Bible one day, and, and I want to share this with you. I was reading the Bible one day, and I felt like when I was reading it, there was something that was kind of interrupting. It was a bruise. felt like a bruise, you know, in my, in my memory, in, I, in, my, in my body. You know, you get a black and blue mark, someone comes up and grabs you like, ah. So I just felt like the more I read the Bible, the more I prayed and get closer to the Lord, there was something there. And I said, Lord, what is this? 
well, you know, what, is, what am I, and it was, I remember this, I was seventh grade, and I was in class, I was a little class clown, I liked to make people laugh, and, and so uh, I was disruptive, I was rude, and as I was making people laugh, the math teacher started walking down the aisle, and I, and I remember him just slapping me, he slapped me in the side of the head, and, and I remember seeing stars, and I remember that I grabbed in a big knot formed, and as he walked away, I could just remember him turning his class, the big classroom ring around. And that's what he hit me with, with that big old ring. And, and I, I was like, I cussed him out and I got up and I left class. I went home, I hitchhiked home about 20 miles. And I was home about two days. I was like, man, I, I was so mad. I was so hurt. And my mother came and said, where are you school called? What's going on? And I told her, we go back to school and sit in the principal's office. And the teacher comes and said, no, that never happened. And for that, I got paddled. So some years into prison, it ate me up. It wasn't a day, it wasn't probably a week. I know there wasn't a month that went by that I didn't think about getting this guy back. I formed in my mind these revenge tactics that wanted to get him back. I wanted him to hurt and embarrass him like he embarrassed me. And for all those years, and I got saved and born again, and I knew I was a new creation in Christ. I knew that was my identity. I was born again. I wasn't the same person. I wasn't a sinner no more. I was, I was a child of God. I was my, God was my father, no longer Satan. So I knew I, was, I had a new identity, and I knew I had to be a servant. And I was just, and, but this, years later, this thing came up, and I said, God, what, I forgave him. He said, yeah, but you've never blessed them. And I thought, man, I read that verse in Matthew. It says, sons and daughters of God know how to bless those who hurt them and persecute them and use them and, and spitefully use them. And, and so I got on my knees, and I started praying, and I started blessing, specifically blessing this teacher by name. And I said, this is some of the things I remember. I said, Lord, I want him to be a principal. I want him to get a raise. I want him to have a new car in a garage. God, I want his kids to grow up to go to college and be professionals. God, I want his marriage to be sound and, and fine. And I just pray his bank account. And everything, I mean, everything I wanted in life for myself or would want, I prayed for him. And within a day, that was broken. And it was something I never talked about before. Because I was always embarrassed about this guy paddling me and hitting me. And I started talking to the other inmates about this. I, we'd just be in a group. So I was in a group of about four or five other lifers, and we we're out in the yard, and we're all talking, and, just, and I said, hey, let me share a story with you. And I shared it with just like you. And this one guy just started crying. He's teared up. And he was a big guy, Dwayne. He was a big power lifter. And I said, what happened, man? What's going on? He said, hey, listen. He said, hearing that story reminded me when I was a kid. I grew up with my grandfather, and my grandfather hated me to go outside, and I would love to go outside in the yard, and he kept me, and he said he took a chain, and he wrapped it around my neck, and he locked it, and he stuck me in a dark basement. He said, that's how he treated me. He would lock me down there for hours, and then he would let me out, because I would like to, and, and he said, I've never told anybody of that. And as he started telling people, we'd start seeing other men get free. And I'm not telling you to share your garbage with everybody, because everybody has garbage, but that what God has redeemed, you can share, because God will use it to set others free. And believe me, there's men, in, there's men in our community that need to be free because they're holding on to past wounds. Divorces or failed marriages or, or failed businesses or whatever it is. They were hurt as kids. So 24 years I get denied, I go back and praise. And when I had 30 years in the system, 30 years in the system, I, I went up for commutation again. And this time I, uh, I wait two and a half years for an answer. It's the longest period of time in my life, it seemed. It's supposed to take one year. That's the norm of getting a response from the governor. I waited two and a half years, and I remember every time I got on the phone or I write a letter, my family, my friends, you know, God had restored some relationships, and 
a lot of relationships, and also some old friends of mine from high school were coming to visit me with their kids and their family. And it was just incredible what God was doing. And, and I waited two and a half years, and finally the counselor said, hey, Gene, you got to, the governor responded. We're going to have a, set up a little panel, a board, and have you come up. And I'm like so excited, you know. And I go up and I sit down, and they're all smiling, and they said, the governor denied you. And man, I tell you what, 32 and a half years in, I, 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 I didn't, I didn't know what to do, but I knew I needed to thank them and look them in their eye and just say thank you for supporting me. Everybody supported me. I had the district attorney who prosecuted the case in 77 write a letter to the governor and say, Gene should have been out. He should be out. We, we want him released. It's unheard of. The institution's like, how'd you get a letter from the DA that put you in prison? I said, I, I don't know. I just had, it's just God's grace. It was the goodness of the Lord. And so I remember shaking her hand and, and I was going back to my cell and I, I knew I needed to go back and get on my face and before the Lord. And, and as I was going back, the Holy Spirit said, I want you to get on your knees and thank me. And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I'm thinking, okay, that's what I do. So I get back to my cell and I'm struggling. I mean, I'm walking back and forth for about a minute. I'm thinking, who do I call first? My sister? Do I call Larry? Do I call, Larry's been visiting me for all these years and everybody's waiting, friends. And finally, I just felt like the Lord. And so I just fell on my knees and I remember crying. I put the pillow on my face and I just cried. I knew I was going to die in prison. I just felt like, Lord, live or die, I'll serve you. I want to be out. I wanted to, ever, I wanted to get out, but... And I just cried. I remember just putting this pillow on my face, and man, I just snot in tears, and I just let it out, you know. I just, I knew I was going to die. And, and I, but I knew how to say thank you to the Lord out loud. I had to verbally say thank you. And I remember just opening my mouth and saying, thank you, Lord. And when I did... Three things came out of me. He said, God, thank you for protecting me. God, thank you for providing. And thank you for promoting me. I never had to promote myself. As long as I humbled myself and did faithful with the little things, God gave me more. And I never had to hustle and bustle because I learned how to tithe. I learned how to give. I learned how to give and God provided for me. Because everything comes from him anyway. And I knew he protected me. And I'll tell you this, is that... I, was, I went to church Sunday, Monday morning, I'm in the gym working out. I'm, I was a pretty big guy. I was like curling 80, 85, 90-pound dumbbells. And I was just pretty big. And George Patrick was a big guy. He's 6'5", almost 300. He was a former Marine. And he'd call me Christian, like that. Christian, how are you doing? And I thought it was a compliment until I realized he hated everybody. He hated all men. He hated women. He hated men. He hated authority. He hated police. He would say, oh, police ought to be killed, and men ought to be killed, and sex offenders ought to be killed, and all this stuff. And he said, but I like dogs. I love dogs. And I just had a heart for George, and I'd pray for him. I'd even write letters to God, and I, I would say, the blood of Jesus over George. God, I just pray for George. So he come up to me, he said, I saw you on church Sunday hugging a child molester. I said, I don't know who I hug. I just hug on people, you know. I just love on people. And he says, yeah, but da, 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 da. And he just berated. He just went on. And he's all like, I'm sitting there. He's over top of me. His neck is all getting red and his face. And he's just like, ah. And, and I was like, and he starts walking away. He's like, and I said, I don't even know why I said this. Probably, I'm hoping it was an anointing. But I said, George, I said, Jesus said what you hate in others is what you hate in yourself. And man, he turned and looked at me. He's like, I'll kill you. And he come over to me. And he had this big old fist. I said, I'm going to see Jesus right now. Me. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. He's going to hit me. I'm done. I mean, I was like scared. And he stopped. He's like, oh, I hate you. And he walked away. And I don't really know what happened to George. But I knew I had to live faithful every day around him. And he was a motivation for me. I don't know where he's at today. He got paroled and he went on with his life. I knew God protected me. 
And so when I got done praying, you know, you can tell God anything you want. Anything you want, as long as he gets the last word. Give him the last word. Give him a moment to speak into your life. And I did. And when I knelt there, I heard him say, I'm going to release you. I mean, that came out of it. I'm going to release you, but it's not going to be based on your effort. Not on what you've accomplished, not on who you know, not on what you've done. And when I, peace came over me, and I remember standing up, brushed the tears away and the snot, and, and I thought, man, I just, I, I just had this peace come over me like it's going to be okay. And I remember, I said, what do I do now, Lord? He said, go back to ministry, go back to work, go back to being faithful, go back to memorizing the scripture, praying in the morning, go back to doing what you've been doing. So I do. I want to jump ahead because three months later, I got a letter in the mail from an attorney and out of Philadelphia, responding to a new law that came out in May of 2010. And it gave me an opportunity to go back into court. I want to jump ahead about 20 months, and there's, there's more, so much more you read about in the book, but 20 months later, I stood before a judge in the same courtroom, sat at the same table. I was sentenced as a 17-year-old. Obviously, everybody had passed away in the court. The, my attorney had passed away. The judge had passed away, so I had a new attorney and uh, they gave me an attorney and I'm back in the court and the judge said do you have anything to say and it was a process that that I went through and, and they realized that I had been sentenced illegally that I had spent 25 years over any sentence they should have given me but nothing was promised to me and I thought I'm not going to demand anything I'm a servant a servant has no rights and I learned how to get rid of anger by two things I really I learned that anger comes from entitlements and it comes from past wounds. And I learned how to forgive everybody. I learned how to forgive everybody that's ever hurt me or, or I thought that hurt me. And I learned to say thanks. I'm sorry to anybody that I hurt. And so I was free of woundedness. I wasn't wounded. And I realized I have nothing coming in life. I'm a servant. A servant has no rights. A servant has no rights. That's why Jesus was able to operate in the world because he humbled himself. He had no rights except what the Father gave him. We get in trouble when we have all these expectations and rights. And when they're not fulfilled, I get mad. And so I stood before the judge and I said, thank you, judge, for everything you've done today. And I want to say thank you to everybody that's invested in my life because I'm a product of two great investments. An investment of Jesus who died and Larry Titus who walked up to me while I was incarcerated. And he stuck with me for 25 years. And he invested his life in me. The only thing he told me, the only thing I'll ever withhold from you is my wife. I said, can I drive your car when I get out? He said, no, you have to buy your own and get your own. <laughs> but he let me drive his car. So anyway, I, I, I stood there and I, I thanked everybody. And, and, I, and, I, and the judge said, okay, having heard that, he said, having served 34 years, nine months, and 15 days. And I'm thinking, how much time do I have to do? Because I didn't count. I didn't keep calendars. And he said, having served 34 years, nine months, 15 days, the defendant, G. McGuire, has released effective this date. And I remember I just, man, I just lost it. I thought, man, he, and I just cried like a baby. And everybody in the courtroom just started yelling and clapping and hallelujah and praise the Lord. And, and I look up to say thank you to the judge. And the judge walks off the bench, just cleared the court, boom, just left, never closed the court. And the stenographer, she left. And so I was just all of a sudden got real quiet in the courtroom. And you hear someone yell, unshackle him, release him from his chains. He's a free man. Sheriff's coming over, and they're unshackling me, and my sister's climbing over some chairs to get to me, and, and the sheriff's, I hear the sheriff saying, hold on, Mary, hold on. And she goes, no, I, I waited 35 years for him. I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting another second. And she's got my neck and my niece and nephew, and we're all crying. And, 
It's just unbelievable. And then they hand me some clothes and they say, hey, Gene, go change. Because I had an orange jumpsuit on. I was shackled and chained. They took it off. And he said, go change. You're free to go. Mary, take your brother home. And listen, man, I was serving life without parole. And all of a sudden, I'm like free to go home. And I'm like tripping. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And so I go and change. And I, I go back in this room. And I change. And I put on these clothes. And I'm, I'm putting on some jeans and a shirt. And I reach in his bag. And I'm like, there's a bottle of Dulce and Gabbana light blue cologne. And I'm like, mmm. Mm. And I'm dousing myself. Because you don't get cologne. You don't see that in prison. It's a luxury. And so the sheriff was like, gee, that's enough. Stop. So I get up my little record office box. I left everything behind, and, and uh, I told those guys, you can have everything you want, you know. And so I, I'm there. I have my Bible and some legal work, and I get out, and my family's all surrounding me. We're just celebrating, and someone's following me around with, with an iPad. And I didn't know what an iPad was. I never saw a cell phone before. I heard about them, so this, I thought it was an Etch-a-Sketch thing, you know. And, and they're, like, following me around. I'm like, why do they follow me around, you know? And, and then, then someone hands me a cell phone, and I pick up the cell phone, and I'm like, and they say, someone's from California wants to talk to you, and I'm, I'm like trying to figure out how to use the cell phone, and, and they had to come over, and I, had, and I remember that, that I was like, I don't hear anybody, you know, and they come over, and they had to turn it around. It was upside down. <laughs> and, but I went home that night, and uh, I, was, I was telling my friend back here, he's, I forget his name, but he was, we were talking earlier, but so I, I get home, and bouncing off the walls, 10.30, I want to close this, 10.30, I'm bouncing off the walls. Family from New Jersey, all over the place are there celebrating and just talking and crying, laughing and praying. And, and I said to my sister, I said, hey, can I go to the mall? And like, I, I'd never been outside my cell after nine o'clock. I'd never been outside. I could look through a window, but I never saw the open sky after nine o'clock. And, I'm, I'm, and she goes, there's no, there's no mall around here. We live up in northeast Pennsylvania on a mountain, you know. And she goes, but there's a Walmart. There's a super Walmart. I said, that's fine. I've never been to, I don't think I've ever been to one of them. So anyway, I, I, uh, we get in a car with my nephew and we go and he stops to get some gas at a little pump and pantry, a little country. This thing was there when I was in 77. And so it was rusty and it's, you know, it's beat down. And so we stopped me getting some gas. I've got the door. I'm standing in the doorway of the car and it's, I'm just like tripping. I'm like, man, this, I've never been outside myself at nine o'clock. I'm almost a little, a little paranoid, not really, but I'm like, this is like strange, you know, and it's like if my friends could see me now. And uh, so this car pulls up next to us, and she, this lady gets out, and she goes, hey, guys, can you help me out? I, I came to get some cigarettes, from a, for, and, and I forgot my wallet, and can you help me out? And my nephew's like, no, I don't, I don't have, I just came here to get some gas. I don't, I don't have my ID or anything like that. And, and I was like looking at my nephew. I'm like, you don't have your driver's license? Man, we're going to jail tonight, man. We're, I don't know. I don't know, you know. And she looks at me, and she goes, can you help me out? And I'm like, look, I, I said, I don't have anything. I have to go to DMV tomorrow to get a driver's license, non-driver's license to fly down to Dallas. And I said, I don't have anything. And she's looking at me like I'm lying. And she gives me that look. And I panicked in the sense that when you're telling the truth and someone is, you know you are telling the truth and they're thinking lying. So I pulled a prison card. And I said, look, I just got out of prison today. And, and she goes, well, how much time do you do? And I said, a lot of time. And she goes, well, how much time did you do in prison? I said, 35 years. And she looked at me, she got back in the car and took off. And she did, that was it. I looked at my nephew and she he said, she wasn't 18. I said, oh my goodness. You know, I was like, welcome to society. Well, a couple weeks later, I, I flew to Dallas. Larry had moved to Colleyville. He started his ministry, the missions work. When he, God called him at five, he was, he was, 60 some years old. He spent 40 years pastoring churches. 
One day he woke up and says, God's not calling me to do this more. I'm going on missions. And he's been doing that. He's in Brazil right now. And I told him the other day, I met him in a barbershop over there in Grapevine. And I, I saw him and, and, and I said, man, I saw you more when I was in prison than I do now. <laughs> he lives 20 minutes from me, 15 minutes. And, uh, but it's just, it's incredible. So I came down here and, and I, I did some things, work in ministry. Wherever I went, I would just share my testimony. I don't care if it was one person on the street or if it was in a restaurant or it's a church, wherever, I would just share my story of God's redemption, of God's power to, to, to do something when there was nothing there. And then a, four years ago, I started working for Babes as a pastor. I met the owner, Paul Vineyard. They're a Christian family. They see their, they see their business as a ministry to help uh, unwed pregnant women, uh, military, um, missions, uh, community. But they, they want to share the gospel. And so it's just incredible to work with them. And uh, it's just a privilege to do that. I love it. I love it.